As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am that host of yours, she who is far too obsessed with the intricacies of ancient sources and how they make absolutely zero sense, but isn't that the fun of it all? I'm Liv, and today I am here with the second half of my episode with Dr. Machi Paprotsky, all about mythology in its broadest and most specific forms. It was just such a joy to talk all things mythology for this episode, to look at the characters through this like microscopic lens, but also how they broadly interact with each other and with mortals and the ins and outs of divinity and the children of the gods and those gods and goddesses who tend to exist like half forgotten despite all their incredible importance in the ancient sources. <sighs> Honestly, this was just such an amazingly fun and fascinating conversation obviously, because it ended up over two hours, and I couldn't and didn't want to cut it into something shorter, hence part two. So let's not dawdle on the introduction, let's get right back in. This does pick up, like, immediately after we left off last week, because we certainly didn't intend for it to be so long when we first started chatting, so I just, like, picked a random pause that kind of worked, and that is more information than you need to know, but isn't that what I'm good for?
conversations. Zeus just can't keep it in his chiton. Theologizing the Gods with Dr. Machi Paprotsky. Now you've made me wonder if you have any theories on one of my other favorite sort of weird, not a discrepancy, but like almost, I find it really fucking interesting how Aphrodite just, I mean, her and Ares and Hephaestus, like just this idea that this one goddess not only like, you know, has the sort of like agency enough to be like, I don't want to sleep with my husband. I want this god of war, <laughs> despite the consequences. But also just like the her being married to Hephaestus, not being able to get out of it, but also like not being in it. And then the fact that all of through that, she's also the goddess of love. Like it just is perpetually interesting to me and also confusing. <laughs> It is, it is. And, you know, I think there are many possible interpretations and explanations. I would say that, well, from one perspective, at least, it's political. Mm. Because we do have fragmentary stories that before Aphrodite was married to Hephaestus, Hephaestus was chasing Athena. Right. And this is where we get the story of Erictonius, you know, and yeah. all that, you know, emission of his. <laughs> yeah. But snakes, basically, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, but this is uh, actually something that connects to uh, the coup in the Iliad. Mm. Because, you know, these coliasts, the commentaries on the Iliad, they give you reasons why the gods would rise, rise against Zeus. And obviously Hera, because he was, you know, unfaithful. And, you know, Poseidon, because he was jealous, because he was supposed to be the top god and they were supposed to be equal, but Zeus likes to stress his preeminence. But then also Athena. And here we have a mention because Zeus tried to marry her off to Hephaestus. And, you know, Hephaestus is an incredibly powerful god. And I think the only god who has the power to bind other deities on Olympus. yeah. And you have this wonderful story when he comes with this cursed throne and Hera sits on it and nobody can do anything. Yeah. And she's just, you know, taken out of the game. And the same happens with Ares and Aphrodite when they are bound. Because, you know, all the gods are laughing at them and saying, oh, yeah, basically this is revenge porn, okay? Yeah. <laughs> be clear. This is revenge porn. Yeah. And all the gods are laughing and looking at them, but Poseidon is not. And he goes to Hephaestus and he tries to reason with him. And I think this is because he's an older god and he recognizes that one god has just shackled and fettered principles of love and war. What's going to happen afterwards? Like, you know, is this a precedent we really want to have? Yeah. And he tries to negotiate with Hephaestus to release them because he knows it's too much power for one god. So Zeus is desperate to somehow cope Hephaestus into his family. Because he's already on the outs. I mean, he was keeping company with Thetis. She raised him. She's in the exile. So he's already not really integrated. You have to put him in somehow. So we have to marry him. And obviously, Aphrodite is very desirable. She's currently unattached. So that would be the best solution. But before that happens, we see that we have this very weird story about Hephaestus pursuing Athena. So we know that it wasn't simple and we know that there was a lot of bouncing and this weird indeterminate period in the middle when the matters could have gone much, much worse for the Divine Family. Mm-hmm. Zeus managed to avoid it, but nobody was happy afterwards. Well, Aphrodite, you know, she finally, she found a way to sort of satisfy herself. Yeah. Anyway, but... 
Yeah. Yeah, but this marriage was very much a political thing as well. Yeah. It's funny because I've always, when I've tried to break it down, seen it in a similar way, but always tied it more to Aphrodite. Because I think there's some sort some sourcing that kind of mentions that like she was almost too powerful because she wasn't like and she is. constrained. Yeah. But it's interesting. So you to have s- two gods who are powerful. Yeah. And they have to be somehow neutralized. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like the Hephaestus side. I mean, is yeah, just sort of an an interesting addition. And I don't think they have children, do they? No, which is also and that's a big the thing. issue. Like you know, uh, like if you have two powerful deities, you don't want to have them to have children because yeah. then their child could be something that could potentially endanger Zeus. And notice how often that happens: either a powerful god or goddess becomes a virgin. Yeah. Or they don't have any children. Like the same goes for Hades and Persephone. I yeah, mean, true. They are both very powerful deities. If they were to produce something, you know, you know, you have these fragmentary sources and the Orphic material yeah. about them having children. Yeah. But they aren't, you know, really accepted by the general mythology. Like usually it seems like they are sterile. And yeah. the same goes from Aphrodite and Hephaestus. And I think it's a rule here. Like Zeus wants to tie off all these loose ends in his genealogy. Like no more children, no more powerful descendants. Like mean the end of it. Yeah. But there is one thing that is still left off. Apollo. Oh. Yeah, I don't like him either. But he's a fascinating <laughs> character. Yeah. Yeah, he's one that's really great to... You love to hate him. Because there's so yeah, much. Can. And also, he's so unlikable. Nobody likes Apollo. Like, you know, he was a rapist. He was a molester. You know, he was daddy's boy. Yeah. <laughs> he's awfully whiny. <laughs> it, it's funny you say that, though. So, I... There's only one god where I have ever had angry Hellenic polytheists yelling at me about about how I talk about him and that's Apollo. <laughs> yeah. So there but are Apollo definitely people really who terrible. love him and I'm like, I don't know what you see in him, but like, whatever, I'm going to say what I want. But yeah. But at his heart, I think Apollo is a very, very tragic character mm. in a way. And, you know, there is a way or an approach where you can sort of see that he had it hard and there is a source to his frustration. And I would say this is his relationship with his father. Okay. Because, you know, there is this big story that Apollo possibly, possibly, this is something I'm really working on right now, so I'm not certain yet, but it looks to me like Apollo was supposed to defeat Zeus and take his place. And this is a lot of extrapolation, but basically in the Theogony, we see that, you know, there's divine takeover after takeover, so Uranus, Cronus, and then Zeus. Yeah. But then Cronus curses his children. He says that they overstrain themselves. This is why they're called Titans. I mean, overstrainers. And they would reap retribution at some later point. And Zeus basically does the same. And there's always this threat hanging in the air that, you know, one of your children can do the same. And basically, Zeus is very good, as I've said, of in with co-opting his children and making sure that they don't have powerful grandchildren and, you know, all the family lines are extinguished. But he's not so very good with Apollo. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Apollo is this weird kind of god that, you know, even when he is born, And when we have the description of his birth in the Homeric hymn to Apollo, uh, you know, and we have this wonderful story of his mother Leto traveling the earth and being unable to give birth because Hera made it so that no place on earth can give birth, can she give birth uh, birth at uh, while she's pregnant. And, you know, every land, every island, everything refuses Leto to just alight and give her birth at this place. But 
uh, little, uh, you know, alights at Delos, the island, and which is a moving island, so she's, it's not bound by the same rules, and she starts to negotiate with this island, stating that, you know, I would give you a lot of clout and fame if I were to bring my children to the world here. And the island, personified island, which I think is crazy cool, yeah. answers, and she says, well, okay, so you drive a hard bargain, and I know that I'm desolate and nobody likes me, but I am afraid, you know, there is a rumor going around. A persistent rumor that you're going to birth a child, Apollo, and he will be a rabble rouser. He will be unruly and he will be hard to mortals and immortals alike. And I am afraid that when he is born, he will destroy me. Such is the terrible thing that you have in your womb. And you know, well, you see that there is this the poet who wrote this hymn. We don't know who that was, mm-hmm. but he was clearly tapping into this theogonic tradition of a terrible child who is coming to put Zeus to his, to his end. Yeah. And obviously Apollo is born and nothing happens, but the hymn itself, you know, it's never quite sure whether Apollo is dreadful or delightful. Like, for instance, we have this scene at the very beginning of the hymn when Apollo comes to, Olymp- comes to Olympus and all the gods rise up. Like, you know, they are afraid, you know, what's going to happen? Is he going to shoot us with his bow? And only when Leto takes away his bow and, you know, gives him the cup and he sits at Zeus's side and everybody quiets down. Okay, not this time, not yet. Yeah. But when Apollo draws his bow in the skin, he, it's using the verb titaine. Apollo is overreaching himself. He has this idea that he has the potential to be somebody who can endanger Zeus, which I think is crazy. And when you look at what happens to him afterwards, like, for instance, we already uh, talked about this coup in the Iliad, and many scholars say that Apollo took part as well. Mm-hmm. And that would make a lot of sense, because we see in the Iliad that Apollo once and Poseidon, they served at the court of King Laomedon in Troy. Like, for instance, Poseidon was building the walls, and Apollo, you know, was uh, pasturing his flocks and all that. And you ask yourself, why? Like, why would they be punished and go serve a mortal king? And the scholars say, obviously, Poseidon is being punished because, you know, he challenges at this coup and Apollo must have taken part as well. This was only the first offense, because afterwards, you know, there happens a story of Asclepius. Apollo has a child who is also a character because his mother, if we continue our thought from before, was a demigoddess, at least a weird between creature. Because if you look at Asclepius and his mother, Coronis, at least in some traditions or yeah. sources was the daughter of Phlegias and uh, I don't well her the name of her mother escapes me, but you can sort of arrange her family tree so that you know her mother was a demigoddess and her father was a demigod son of Ares so basically her mother was born out of two demigods so yeah. she has this family lineage and then Apollo comes and impregnates her so this child is going to be wicked wild like yeah. you know you can tell and he is. He confuses the boundaries between life and death. He deprives Hades of his subjects. So Zeus kills him with a thunderbolt. And Apollo, who was already previously punished for his coup, he just flips. And we have this in very fragmentary sources, but also in the play Alcestis. Apollo tells, it, tells the story himself that he went and he killed Cyclopes, who are forging Zeus's thunderbolts. And Zeus was so angry that he punished him that he has to serve at the court of Admetus for a year and help the king. But what Apollo does not say in this story is that in some fragments of Hesiod, we have this idea that Zeus was so angry that he intended to throw Apollo into Tartarus. It's clearly said. And we also have this in the Homeric hymn to Hermes when, you know, Apollo is 
th uh, trading threats with Hermes, Apollo is very clear to say that he will throw he, he will throw Hermes, his brother, to Tartarus. Like you know, this is something that is not spoken about in polite company about the gods. I mean, this is the ultimate you know punishment, and yet yeah. Apollo is very free with that. So you can sort of see that Zeus wanted to punish Apollo much more severely because his son was messing with the boundary of life and death. But Apollo, you know, is incorrigible, and when he goes down and he starts serving Admetus's court. He basically starts doing the same thing over again, because you know uh, we all know the story that he wants to help the king, and there is this prophecy that Admetus will die young. So Apollo wants to do something about this. Well, uh, what are the possible solutions? He could go to his daddy and say, "Okay, so be nice to me and please spare this mortal." But now you know Zeus is not in a very good mood with Apollo right now. <laughs> he doesn't like him. He is just doing his time at Earth. So. So basically, this is a no-go. The other way, he could go and ask the fates, the Moirai, to sort of intercede. And he did. Basically, we have this, uh, these snippets in the play of Alcestis that Apollo admits that he went to the Moirai and he tried to bargain, but they drove such a hard bargain that Apollo says, no, he can't do anything. And he is so reduced and so desperate that he plies the Moirai with vine and he makes them drunk. And only then they agree, okay, so Admetus will live, but you will have to find a substitute who will die for him. And, you know, obviously it turns out that, well, you have Admetus and his wife, Alcestis, agrees, and, you know, and she dies, and Heracles comes like Deus Ex Machina, and everything ends well. But the very story shows that Apollo was always messing with the boundary of life and death, and Zeus was not too pleased about this. And I think this entire story finds its end in the Oresteia, mm. especially in its last part, the Eumenides. Because, you know, there is this whole trial when you have Athena and Apollo on one side and the Furies or the Erinys uh, at the other. And the Erinys, I think, are very clever. They are very good at making Apollo flip, even though he's quite unflappable, usually. But they ask him one question. So, okay, Apollo, you say that uh, basically, you know, it's not very important that Orestes killed his mother because it's more important to venerate your father. But didn't your own father Zeus imprison his old man Cronus? And, you know, this is one wonderful place because Apollo just flips. He calls the Erinys, you awful beasts with whom no man or no god wants to have intercourse. And yes, he's talking about sex, so he is just offending them. You are awful and you are unfuckable. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, basically, when you look at the commentary to display, every, uh, every classicist says, this is very weird. Like, you know, a god should not speak this way to a god. Like, you know, this is the only place where the god gets so angry that he compares another god to a beast. And it just goes to show that Apollo was really, really angry. And I started to think, well, why? And, you know, there is logic to that. Because basically they're telling him, oh, so you are supposed to defeat your old man Zeus as Cronus did, you know, as Cronus was defeated. What did you do? You were punished twice. You achieved nothing. And now you have, you know, and your own son Asclepius is still dead. And, you know, Apollo actually alludes to Asclepius in his very next word because he says, well, obviously, you know, uh, Cronus is only enchained in Tartarus, and he can be brought up still by Zeus's will. But Zeus has no way to raise the dead. Like, you know, Zeus cannot do this. He hasn't found any miracle or charm to do that. 
And I think to myself, well, Apollo is right now, he's lying through his teeth because, you know, we know the story about Asclepius. Asclepius was able to raise the dead. So to t for Apollo to tell that Zeus is unable to raise the dead is laughable. And you can say that Apollo is at the very end of his stature. He's been backed into a corner by the Aranis and he's been made angry because he realized that he has just lost technically because they hit him where it hurts. Like basically the Aranis says, so you are a failure. Your son died. You were unable to save him. All you have is hanging on Zeus's word. And Zeus, if he wants, he can throw you into Tartarus. He did not, but you are still on his sufferance. So then it just goes to show like their relationship is so fraught and there is this circulating, percolating idea that Apollo could have, should have attacked Zeus. He could have destroyed him, but he failed and he is an eternal failure and he still depends on his father. That makes so much sense when it comes to his personality. Like... He's just so insufferable. And I like him so much more if I think that he's like got a reason for being so insufferable. And I feel like he's kind of like he's often I want to say this and then I can't think of exact examples, but it feels to me like he's often like sucking up to Zeus because he always kind of yes. feels like the favorite. But if you think of him as more like overcompensating than than like sincerely wanting to be his father's favorite like that's so much more interesting yes because you know if you consider his position that basically it's very difficult for him because one thing you can say about uh, apollo is that he seems to have genuinely loved asclepius mm -hmm. he just tried to rearrange the cosmos and attack zeus because asclepius was killed so i see that this was very difficult for him and to have this pointed out so brutally by the ironies that he failed to do so it must have been incredibly difficult for him and it sort of explains his own story and his own i think trajectory in the greek mythology that this is a god who never achieved what he was supposed to do yeah i think basically in zeus's cosmos if you want to have stability you have to nip potential and it's visible, I think, in many deities that they have been harmed and limited in some way. But in Apollo, I think it goes extremely clear that there was so much that could have happened. And it did happen because, you know, twice he attacked Zeus and twice he tried to depose him. At least this is what the sources say. But at the same time, he failed. So he, it isn't a very easy way for him to deal with these emotions. And you kind of sort of see this still, you know, this, this burning anger within him that tries to escape from time to time. Even though he is portrayed, as you've said, as this god of reason, this cool intellect. Yeah. He is not. Yeah. I mean, he also has such famous stories of him, um, like just the way, way you described him loving Asclepius. Like, obviously, this is different because Asclepius he loves as a son, but there are a lot of times where he tries to love, typically men, and it goes really poorly. And like Admetus was reportedly also his lover. Right, true. Yeah. So Admetus and then, you know, Hyacinthus and and Cyparissus, like these ideas that he does seem to legitimately love sometimes, and then they always die tragically. And it yeah, it kind of it gives I don't want to feel sympathetic towards Apollo, so I'm gonna like hold myself back from that. But like it is really interesting. To see him more as somebody who keeps trying and keeps failing, seemingly yeah. for stuff that isn't totally his fault. Yeah, but it's simple. Like, hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I mean, okay. I feel like at this point, you've talked about almost all the Olympians, and I kind of want to hear about the ones that we've missed. <laughs> just if there is any of these, like, just super interesting things I've never thought about. Um, and so, like, I mean, like, Artemis is interesting because, I don't know, I just want to hear about Artemis. Do you have any thoughts on her? <laughs> uh, okay, I have an interesting detail, like, and actually it's connected to Asclepius in a way. Because, you know, one of the people who Asclepius is said as having tried to resurrect is Orion. Mm, right. And who is Orion? Like, basically, he is Artemis's almost boyfriend, I would say. Yeah. And that, you know, can sort of observe this in the sources that Orion is an enigma. And you have this weird, weird relation that, you know, for instance, there is this story when I think, if I remember correctly, that Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes urinated onto a skin and this is how Orion came to be. <laughs> But then, you, yeah, like, you know, this is once, I'm not sure if I'm correct, because, you know. <laughs> I mean, you never know with Greg Smith, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been such a long time. But then, if you look at Orion, he has a very illustrious, uh, I would say, family. And if I remember correctly, there is another genealogy. I'm not sure if it's his yet or not, but he also has a kind of divine descent. Mm -hmm. And when you consider Orion, it looks like he could have this sort of divine background. If he wanted, and if he had a push, he could become divine himself. And Artemis obviously is a virgin goddess, for an obvious reason. Like, she has this problem that she could bear a child that will be more powerful than Zeus, so she has to be left a virgin. Does she really have then, that? Like, you know, well, basically, you know, she, we are never really sure, because, you know, she expresses it. Like, you know, she, like, uh, we have this wonderful exchange on Hippolytus, uh, then, you know, he worships Artemis because she is, you know, a goddess of the hunt and she has no, you know, no distractions. So basically there's this understanding that Artemis is, you know, of the virginal kind, whereas Aphrodite, whom Hippolytus spurns, you know, she is basically, you know, of the mating conjugal kind. Yeah. So, so you know, there is this kind of like idea that Artemis is a virgin. Whether she wants to be, like, you know, there are some texts that seem to suggest that she wants to. But we never know how much of it, you know, is filtered and how much of it is projected. Like, yeah. you know, she always speaks about it to other gods. And I think we have to keep in mind, whenever we read sources about gods having a conversation, gods can lie. Yeah. They lie perfectly. They lie consummately. They lie to each other all the time. You can see that. So basically, yeah. we are never sure whether what they are telling you is true. It's better to look at their behavior, how they act, or what they say, because they are always consummate liars, and you're never sure what's going to happen here. Yeah. I've just never thought of Artemis as having the potential to have a child stronger than Zeus. But is it more than, like, that, like, kind of everyone has, or, or the Olympians have that potential? I would say that it's uh, for every, I mean, every child of Zeus, or at least every relative of Zeus has a potential to bring a powerful child. Well, there are certain points in the family genealogy, I would call them shutter points to quote, uh, you know, Star Wars, that the potential is heightened. Like, for instance, we have Metis, we have Thetis. Like, you know, Athena is also a very dangerous point because she's said to be as good as Zeus as well. Yeah. I think Apollo is another possible angle. Yeah. And, you know, you could say the same for Aphrodite and Hephaestus, who are also very powerful gods out, out of their own right. You know? yeah. Basically, the only one who I think is kind of left alone is Ares, because everybody thinks that Ares is just a colossal disappointment. Yeah, he's so funny. I meant to mention that earlier, because, like, this idea that you're mentioning, like, you know, putting Aphrodite and Hephaestus together when they don't want to be, so they don't have children, all these different things, but then it's like, Ares just kind of is there. <laughs> like, it's like, he just yeah. doesn't matter. It's, yeah, 
It's so interesting. And this is Hera's problem. Like, Hera is so jealous. Yeah. And this is the uh, beef between Hera and Leto. Like, Leto has wonderful children. She has Apollo and Artemis who are beautiful. And Hera brought Ares. She brought Hebe, who is what? A glorified waitress at Olympus. And then she has the goddess of childbirth who is so easily bribed that she can get, you know, a necklace. And then she does everybody's bidding. So basically, as children go, Hera has drawn a very bad hand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I brought us off topic. Orion. Because Orion's really interesting, like, because I feel like most of the sourcing on him is super fragmentary, but the very concept of him is super famous. And so, like, I don't know. I don't know nearly enough because I think every time I've gone to do, like, an episode on him, it's just so fragmentary that it's really hard to, like, tell a full story. And there's so many, like, really differing versions. Like, isn't there one where he's also a giant? Of some kind? It is, it is. And I think that, well, one, uh, I think, feature of Orion that is very definitive about him is that he is a hunter, mm-hmm. but he is an overly proud hunter. And he has this ambition to destroy and to hunt everything. So it's sort of, he is a character in the vein of all these earlier creatures, you know, which happened as the Earth was just being fashioned is that you sometimes get a character who is so powerful and so proudful that he wants to just turn the entire cosmos upside down. Python comes to your mind, yeah. for instance. Like, yeah. And he's also this kind of uh, person who feels that he is more powerful than the gods. It's very clear with him. But he also has this unclear tie with Artemis. It's either hate or love or friendship. But I would say that it also has a very negative potential. There is a possibility of something really bad going on here. Because yeah. you know you never know what's going to happen. And basically, you know, if Artemis were to marry Orion, theoretically speaking, that I don't think that would be a marriage that would be seen well on Olympus at all. Like, basically, he is he has this indeterminate status, but he is definitely not a god, or at least technically, because yeah. we know that this definition is difficult. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I never, because Artemis is so, I mean, she's a virgin goddess, obviously, but there's also so much to be said about her relationship with women. But yeah, Orion is like the one man who ever gets close to her yeah. in that way. Yeah. All the other have been transformed or curled or cursed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're all so interesting. Okay. I just want to hear everything. Uh, and I'm just trying to like guide thoughts at this point. Um, but I mean, we talked about Ares being so silly. I, I think that's so interesting because like, like Athena is obviously enormously important um but she has these explicit ties to zeus and like you were saying earlier you know like he tries to like erase the fact that she had this mother who obviously contributes an enormous amount to what she is she's of literally course. the goddess of wisdom Metis is coming yeah like it's it's everything um it, it, but at the same time like she She's so interesting to me because, like, by and large, the women have really, they, they're often very powerful, but they're also often held back in really distinct and obvious ways. Like, you know, the way Aphrodite is constrained by so many different functions to ensure that she, you know, her power does not, you know, overtake whatever level of power Zeus has because it obviously could if she were, you know, able. Oh, yeah. And whereas Athena, like, she's... She's constrained in the way that, you know, she doesn't have children, but at the same time, like, it, it, I don't know, it, she, hers is so interesting, I guess. And it's so interesting to me that she is this goddess of war and that Ares is this god of war. And they have such distinct, you know, 
parts of which parts of war they are the gods of. But the fact that Athena is like this super powerful, like, you know, really has a hand in kind of everything. Um, and then Ares is just kind of like there <laughs> has always been really interesting to me. And I wonder, you know, thoughts on that, I guess. <laughs> Uh, so I think that were we to juxtapose Athena and Ares, uh, I would start from the notion that, you know, the divine power, at least in Greece, is much more complicated than we usually assume, because obviously, you know, the Greeks did not say that this is the god of this or that. I mean, this is very simplistic to us, like, because for instance, let's consider Poseidon. I mean, he's also the god of earthquakes and horses, not only of the sea. So basically, you know, I like French structuralists because they try to find a common ground. So what is that connects all these things? Mm. And about Athena, they said that she is not so much war itself, you know, or intelligence itself, or, you know, uh, the weaving or handicrafts or whatever. She is the skillful stratagem, lie and cunning. Mm. And this is how, you know, she encroaches upon the territory of war because she is a strategy side. Mm -hmm. But this is, I wouldn't say, you know, the expression of her innermost being. I would just say that this is something that comes naturally because this is an extension of her social function. But, you know, the source is somewhere else. And when it comes to Ares, I would say that he represents the terror of war, you know, this mm -hmm. dirty, brutal aspect. And in this aspect, he is closer to all these deities that are born of Nyx, you know, uh, you know, uh, the dreadful Ares, Thanatos, and all that, you know, all this dark brood of these personifications who are just uh, wonderfully uh, sketched in Hesiod, like, you know, the lies, the slaughters, and all that. Oh. Ares should belong there. Yeah. He doesn't. Like, you know, but it looks like Zeus wants to have his finger in every divine pie. So every child of Zeus tr tries to sort of, you know, fit into this idea that the children of Zeus encompass the world and the entirety of the human existence. Zeus has his child in every department, so to say. So I would say that Ares is necessary in a way, but he is also a colossal disappointment because exactly of that, that he has to govern over something which is very unpopular. And, you know, Zeus and the family of Zeus and Nyx and the family of Nyx, they, they don't like each other. And this is something that Glenn Most has even called, and I kid you not, theological apartheid. He says that in the sources, for a very long time, we see that there is an enormous beef and feud between the families of Zeus and the families of Nyx. And mm -hmm. he, you also see this in the Iliad, like, you know, when there is this wonderful story about Hypnos, the god of sleep. Stating that, you know, uh, Hera comes to Hypnos and she asks him to do her bidding. But Hypnos says, oh, no, I'm not going to, you know, to make Zeus fall asleep. I did this before when he wanted to torment Heracles. And Zeus wanted to beat me so hard, you know, that he went through the entire world and he was chasing me. And only he relented when I went to my mother, to Nyx, who is the vanquisher of gods and men. And then Zeus was afraid and he dared not to attack her. And it's sort of, you know, I was fascinated by the fragment and I did a little digging and it looks like, which Glenn Moss has also stressed, that until this moment in the Iliad, when actually, you know, Hypnos is supposed to marry one of the graces, we don't know if it happens or not, but before that, no child of Nyx ever had children with the child of Uranus and Gaia. They are kept completely separate. This is something that does not happen. They are not to mix in every way. Which is not to say that Zeus does not like to try to sort of send some embassies to the other realm. 
Like, for instance, some people would say that sending Persephone to Hades would, would count as sort of trying to establish his power base in this kind of dark realm of Nyx. And the same, you could also say that Ares is also sort of encroaching upon this idea of the violent and dark and gloomy and all this. This is very characteristic of Nyx. So you could also say that Ares is also trying to go in that direction. But this divide, I think, continues. And you could also say even that children of Zeus and the powers that they have sort of mirror in a negative way the powers of Nyx and her children. Like, you know, for every child of Nyx, there is somebody in Zeus's family who is opposite. And you have this, I think, in the Ovid, it, or maybe, you know, it was Callimachus. There's this hymn about, well, Arictinus, I think. Mm. Am I right? The guy who tried to eat himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like, so, so basically, I think you know, that you is Ovid, one... though. I have not read a lot of Callimachus. Uh, but maybe it's Ovid, yeah, Ovid. Yeah. I'm not sure yet. But, you know, the story is that, you know, that he offends Demeter. Mm hmm. Because he tries to chop her favorite tree or whatever, you know, but she is offended. And she says, <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to curse him. But Demeter is the goddess of plenty. She's the goddess of, you know, of being plentiful and having harvests. So, you know, technically she could curse the world. And she tries to do that, for instance, in the Homeric hymn to Demeter. But what does she do there? I mean, she refuses for the grain to come up, like, you know. So she does this one really strange thing. Like, you know, she holds her power within mm -hmm. and then nothing grows. So it's not so much so much a matter of cursing, actually, but also withholding. Mm -hmm. She's just not giving what she should do, but she's not actively causing pestilence. And, you know, she's only just taking away what is hers. Whereas here she wants to curse Erectinus with something, you know, active. It's mm -hmm. not like she can withhold good harvest from Obviously she could, but she wants to give him something extra special, nasty. So she goes and she asks hunger or starvation, Limus, who is, you know, a child of Nyx or of Nyx's family. And there is this wonderful phrase that starvation did the matter's bidding, although their aims are ever opposite. Hmm. And this just goes to show like this is a hierarchy and whatever Zeus does, the Nyx will do the opposite and vice versa. So, you know, they have this sort of impasse that, Every god from Zeus's family has an opposite in the family of Nyx. And you can sort of see like this idea in the literature which bounces at the margins that, you know, that these families don't like each other, they don't trust each other. And you can sort of can also see this in Alcestis in this play I've already mentioned that, you know, Apollo, when he comes upon Thanatus, they just quarrel, they are terrible to each other. And you can see that Thanatus is just full of anger and full of hate towards Apollo. And he says that this is something you upper gods do all the time. You encroach upon ancient laws, you destroy, you take away our privileges. And we are the children of the night and we will have our due. We are important gods too. And don't you forget about that. So you can sort of see this, you know, this uh, juxtaposition of these two families at the all time. Yeah, that's really fucking interesting. <laughs> I've never thought this much about Nyx because like, I mean, she's, she's interesting, but it's so conceptual. It's so much about what her and her children represent more than it ever is about like stories. Like yeah. the Erichthonius one is one of those ones. Like, I mean, it's one of the very few, I think where we have such great detail about calling on one of these personification deities to just like do their job and it's so obvious yeah. and this you know? is wise because the people really thought that you should not call upon children of nyx yeah it's not wise <laughs> yeah 
but you know, Nyx appears in one very weird concept in that, you know, and it links back to Helios. Like, you know, because, you know, the Greeks imagined the skies were a charioteer track. And first went uh, Eos, the goddess of the dawn, then Helios, the god of the sun. And after the day was done, the Nyx would then go on her chariot and then just, just make the nightfall. And you have this wonderful passage in the Odyssey when Helios learns that his cattle, uh, cattle has been slaughtered by Odysseus and his men. And he's so angry, he goes to Zeus and he says, if you don't punish Odysseus, I will go to Hades and I will shine amongst the dead. Huh. And then you think, why is this blackmail? Yeah. And then you realize, but wherever Helios goes, Nyx cannot be. Yeah. So she will go up. Yeah. And we know that Zeus does not like Nyx. So, you know, it was like for him, your, you know, your most hated person will come and live with you yeah. forever. Because I will be downstairs and she will be upstairs with you. Yeah. There's just so much more to all of these stories than, like, uh, it's just, I'm, not, I'm having trouble getting over it. It's just fucking interesting as all hell. The fact that that means that Nyx would come and that's what's so terrifying. That's just so interesting. Yeah, but remember, their aims are ever opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm going to think about that all the time. I'm trying to think of any of her other children. Like, Eris, I love so much. I like Thanatis, the god of yeah, death, because yeah. I think he is a very underappreciated character. And I keep thinking about what happened to him and Sisyphus. Because this yeah. is a story that never really gets told uh, in one piece. Like, we have fragments, like, and we know that Sisyphus somehow cheated on us. Right. But we are never told why. And, you know, there is a play, I don't remember the author now, but she wrote basically that Sisyphus had help. Because she describes the scene as, you know, Thanatis coming to the palace and trying to take Sisyphus away. And Sisyphus, of course, plays for time. And then he says, oh, obviously your chains of death, you know, your fetters, they obviously don't work. And he says, oh, well, I, obviously my chains work fine. I can demonstrate, you know, I can just chain you. And he says, oh, no, no, you know, we have to do an experiment. Why don't you chain my wife? <laughs> we'll see. And he, obviously Thanatos says, okay, so you would kill your own wife to demonstrate the point. Okay, weird flex, but whatever. <laughs> and then, then Sisyphus's wife comes. And then she takes upon her chains, and she's chained, but she doesn't die. And Thanatos is like, what's going on? Like, you know, have they lost their warranty? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and Sisyphus starts to deride him. Says, "Oh, you're not a god of death after all. You know, you're some usurping upstart who wants to take me out of my kingdom, right?" And then, you know, obviously, and when Thanatos is wondering what happened in this play, Sisyphus takes his chains and chains Thanatos in his own power. I mean, you think about this. This is circular because the only thing that can unchain the death is death. So he is just taken out of the equation, like he is just been erasing himself in this moment. And in this play, it's explained why the chains did not work on Sisyphus's wife. Because Sisyphus's wife, really speaking, is Merope, a Pleiad, the daughter of Atlas. Sisyphus has married a goddess. Yeah. And you know, you know, obviously this is classical reception because we don't know if it happened like that, but the yeah. author made clear, you know, made very good use of the fact that Sisyphus married Merope and she was there. 
So maybe, you know, Thanatos was asked to demonstrate his craft on Merope and it didn't work because Merope is a goddess. Yeah. She might be small, she might be from not important family, but still, you know, she has this claim. And this is why, you know, Thanatos has been made full of because yeah. of Merope, which I really like. Yeah. That also introduces like an interesting, just like thought experiment of like, whether there's some kind of inherent thing in a god that can recognize another god or whether they can trick each other like that, like that Thanatos didn't know that she's a goddess. I think there is something, maybe, but for instance, you have this wonderful piece in the Odyssey when, you know, Odysseus's companions are coming up on Circe and there is this phrase, is she a woman or is she a goddess? Mm. Right. Like, you know, they don't know. Like, you know, she behaves as a woman, but there are some drug lions coming about. Like, this is not <laughs> <Yeah>. regular. <laughs> like, like, you can see. And I, I think that, well, obviously, you know, there is a very social dimension to being a god in ancient Greece, at least in mythology, in that you have to make clear to the people that surround you that you are a god and you have mm-hmm. to make your stake, you have to make your claim, and you always have to keep proving it because if you are not, then you can lose the status really easily. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, I think this ties into what we've been discussing before about uh, the godhood is something that is conferred upon and being, you know, set by the other deities. Like, you know, they have to give your stamp of approval before they accept you as one of their own. And you can see this story in mythology as well. So the god has to fight for their place at Olympus. You see this with Hermes, with Dionysus, with Hephaestus. They are all the newcomers who enter Olympus and they have to prove to the other gods, yes, we have credentials. We can be here with you. And, you know, maybe this is the opposite way. So maybe what would happen if a god lives, leaves the divine community and starts living among humans? So mm-hmm. Maybe the boundaries would get blurred. I mean, like, if you are married off to a mortal like Maropios, then basically what kind of life do you have? You wait until your husband dies and then what? Like, you know, what happens when you mate an immortal and a mortal? Like, you know, there yeah. is this logistics that the mythology doesn't really speak about, but it's still there. Yeah. You have to wonder. And that's interesting because the mythology does have instances of the opposite. You know, like when Eos wants to marry is Tythonus, I think, right? And and like... Oh, Eos had lots of mortal lovers. Oh, for sure. But the one... This is part of Aphrodite's curse. Yeah. (laughs) If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eos, yeah. I mean, she's interesting. Eos, I also think, is one of the only goddesses where the stories of her lovers are pretty explicitly like non-consensual. Um, yeah. yeah. Whereas usually, like with when it comes to women, they either just like don't say or they imply that obviously the guy was into it. But like with Eos, it's like, Ugh. um. But there, there's the one where she wants to marry the mortal and then she forgets to ask like she gets him immortality but she forgets to ask zeus to give you believe that no oh yeah yeah forgets (laughs) yeah (laughs) like yeah but i don't mean forgets i think that well she asked zeus but zeus you know zeus is zeus he knew right she is zeus was being willfully obstructed right you know he knew that like you know what I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that it's not to be done. Like <laughs> Right. Yeah. But we still get this idea of like, yeah, what, like that that happens, you know, if a mortal is kind of brought to the immortal realm, like you have to have very specific 
you know, things laid out that you need in order for it to actually succeed. But it's interesting to think about the other way of, yeah, like whether when a goddess or a god goes down and sort of. Yes. And, you know, yeah. it's, you know, we have this layer in the Greek mythology, at least when you go upwards towards the stories and before and before, you actually find the place where the gods mate with nymphs. And this is how humans happen. Mm. Like, for instance, you have Tantalus, who is son of Zeus and nymph Pluto, but he is human for some reason. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, Tantalus marries another nymph and he has Niobe. And I've read a wonderful fan fiction when Niobe uh, sort of dwells upon her rivalry with Leto and her children. And she says, basically, you know, my grandparents are all gods. I am divine. I have the same four beers as Zeus and his family. Why should not the same privilege and power be accorded to me? What is the difference? I am also very fruitful. I have 14 children. I mean, take that, you know. Basically, she behaves as a goddess living on the earth, but basically... She has credential. I mean, she could tell. I have parents. I have grandparents. You know, I am powerful. I am beautiful. I have children. Like, you know, and and here, when he entered this kind of rivalry, it only comes down to the place where the strongest wins. So obviously, you know, were Leto to be weaker, I think it could have been left unresolved. But because Leto is so proud and so spiteful, she could not let... The sleeping Niobe lie. She had to make an example of her. Yeah. Yeah, but well, Niobe had a lot of sense in what she told. The yeah. People Interesting. She has the family. Yeah. She has the pedigree. Yeah. I love that cursed family so much that I'm just now just trying to think of like all the different bits and pieces that go into that too. With Tantalus being like equally divine. That's really interesting. And it's just this matter yes. of like pissing the wrong people off. Yes, because, you know, at this early stage, basically, it's all depending upon the will of Zeus, whether mm -hmm. you get immortalized or not. So basically, uh, we already discussed that Zeus wants to prune his family tree. He has way too many children, so obviously not all of them can become gods. You have to have humans as well. Mm -hmm. But Zeus, due to Aphrodite's meddling, he can't keep it in his, you know, in his chiton and yeah. he keeps going on adventures. And then he has these children who are semi-divine and you have to do something with them. But there's this weird idea, we've already mentioned it. At some point, it just defaults to humans. Mm -hmm. When the gods, you know, have sex with different creatures, at some point, it's always going to end in humanity. I don't know if this is the Greek version of the idea that after some generations, the magic simply goes away. Mm. Or maybe you can explain this by this idea that if you live on Earth and behave as humans do, that gradually you're going to lose whatever made you different. Mm -hmm. And after some generations, you're just going to be the same as everybody else. What do you think about the like the hero children of gods? I'm trying to think of like the ways they vary. Like I'm just thinking, you know, Heracles being particularly divine. And I guess it was Perseus. And I'm just now I'm just sort of thinking aloud that they're sort of the ones that are most explicitly children of Zeus. Whereas Jason is like a little bit more iffy. It's like a couple generations back. Oh, Jason and is not a demigod. Is he not at all? Yeah, okay. No. Um, I mean, it makes sense. Odysseus uh, is neither. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could argue for this connection of grandparents, but... Yeah, far it's off. It's very dilute. Yeah, well, and then we get, like, some lesser, you know... And, I mean, I suppose it's just lesser in terms of the sources we have. Like, Sarpedon is the ch child of Zeus, and he just kind of dies. Like, but although you know it causes a scene, it does. Olympus, that's right? true. Yeah. It's a big show. Yeah, 
I don't know. Oh, it's so interesting. I, I always like um, the idea of Theseus, too, where it's like, is he the child of Poseidon or is he not? We don't really know. I like to think he's Oh, not. the weight of expectations, right? I mean, I feel like either way it goes badly for him because Poseidon is also not the god you want to be your father. So (laughs) I think he has a bad pedigree and then he goes on to make a lot of mistakes himself. Yeah. Yeah. It's just endless. There's just there's too many gods, too, because then I just want to know everything. Um, But, you know, that's the problem with doing research on that, because if you want to impose some measure of order, then you have to look at the huge database and then try to see if there are any other trends. And if there is a trend, they're obviously going to be an exception. And then you have to sort of. And then I think about the wonderful phrase from one of, uh, from an introduction to Hung Versnell's book, Coping with the Gods. And it starts with an excerpt, I think, from his daughter, who says, maybe it didn't have to make sense. Maybe it just had to rhyme. <laughs> and it, <laughs> and it rhymes. Yeah, I definitely think a lot about how it just doesn't always need to make sense. But I also am navigating you know, listeners coming to me who who don't have any kind of background in ancient Greece and, and mythology, which I love. But it's so difficult when you don't have the kind of grounding in the sourcing, because so often you're coming to these stories via whatever random book you picked up at the store that says Greek myths. Yeah, or reception. And, and it all of those tend to make it seem like it all was kind of happening in one little time period that we can sort of we can just be like oh well these are the stories and it's like well no there's a thousand years to deal with here i and and so much changes so often it's like yeah it just doesn't have to make sense like some of it does for sure and it's so interesting to look at the time periods where like even just looking at you know Hesiod and Homer and being like okay well they, these are happening at such a similar time or the plays too where it's like this you can conceivably make sense though of course the plays are reception in themselves and it's endless but but yeah like to navigate like for instance I'm I'm doing this episode on Dionysus and it's it was really interesting to me to learn based on the sources that I was able to find for this at least that like pre I would say like first century maybe even ce he's basically only with ariadne in terms of like romantic lovers and then something kind of changes and i mean there's a there's a few after in different sort of sources like pseudopolidorus and hyenas but then of course then later we have nonus who's coming in and he's like dionysus had all these lovers and it's like like are those invented are those missing pieces that we don't know of like was Dionysus slutty because like it seems like he might not have been and that's kind of interesting and then suddenly something changes and he is or I don't know I it was it's been weird navigating what I'm actually writing this episode about because yeah looking once I get into the source I'm like oh what am I actually doing with this because it's so it's different than I expected which of course Dionysus is just like weird generally but yeah. But this is the problem with the patriarchal nature of the Greek mythology. There's a problem with and, that? Sorry. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> the problem is, like, for instance, like, when we, you know, when we side with Hera and says that Zeus is a terrible adulterer, then in this world, I mean, Zeus does nothing wrong. Like, Hera is his property, and he wants to have some extracurricular fun. And Hera might be angry about this, but she cannot say anything. 
because you know obviously you know due to this very nature of patriarchal society i mean hera has to stay uh, a virgin and pure for zeus because nobody can confirm the paternity of her children whereas zeus can have all the fun he wants because you know it's not his daughter or his son that he is having fun with like you know he is basically causing problem from some other family and if some father of this family could challenge Zeus as an equal, then Zeus would be much more careful. But because Zeus, you know, has no equal, that he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And I think this could be applied to Dionysus as well, in that basically he could have a very loving and very respectful relationship with Ariadne. But then again, you know, within this world, it would be expected if Zeus wants to have some lovers, he could, I mean, if Dionysus wants to have some lovers, he could. Yeah, I mean, but as long as he treats Ariadne nicely and he brings home the bacon, I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, cares. yeah, like technically speaking, there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. What's interesting to me is that we don't have sources for that, really, like, or at least not many. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, and and if they, yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of sources for like detailed stories on Dionysus that are super early. Anyway, he's just kind of like there, always being super important, but just trying to actually find like details. Yeah, like even his hymns aren't that long like anyway it, it's but yeah it's interesting to me that there isn't some long list like zeus and like poseidon all of these men you know who do have like endlessly long lists of the various men and women that they were with <laughs> in whatever but other equals right no god never no. No, no i think that could be important as well yeah that always have their partner who is of a lesser status mm -hmm. and then they can do this but when it's marriage, if you're equal, like Zeus and Hera, this is serious stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, it's political. It has a very significant meaning and it means something in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And maybe this could be extended to Dionysus as well. That basically he was a loose end as well in Zeus's great, great family tree. So to write him as having, you know, lovers, male or female, would be kind of dangerous as well because he was not supposed to have children because if right. you have this genealogical account that you have to end at some point otherwise you're going to go until the very current moment and what happens then this has been so much fun um please feel free to come back on the show anytime uh, i'd love to oh I my god myself I, I would i would love to have you um it's really i hadn't quite realized how rare it is that i get to talk about mythology so specifically now because i have so many guests on that come talk about whatever random like theatrical or historical or whatever but i'm like oh right i really love when somebody can come tell me all these mythological things that i don't know it's so cool <laughs> and i likewise you know i really love to speak about mythology and to talk mythology with somebody because i think this is a vice and a problem in classical studies that people don't really study mythology per se. I mean, they do, but they do it in a kind of systematic way or, for instance, as a literary genre, which is fine, of course. Yeah. But they don't like asking this kind of questions that we like to ask, like, how does it work? You know, what's the technicality? What's the relationship? Like, these are the questions that are very difficult. They are often unclear and they take you into places where your entire knowledge about the Greek mythology gets challenged. Like yeah. for instance, these issues of immortality and technicalities about demigods, like it doesn't make sense. And even if it makes sense, you know, you are very liable to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, I always so happy when I meet somebody like you, because then you can see that, you know, these are important issues. And if nobody asked these kinds of questions, then basically we would have no creative endeavor in classical reception. Yeah. 
But I think that these these kinds of questions are more often asked by the people who try to rewrite Greek mythology because they have to give Greek, Greek gods motivations, powers, limitations, as we've mentioned. And then they start asking questions like, you know, are they vulnerable or not? How does a divine family look like? How does a divine society look like? So, you know, how the gods spend their days on Olympus? And, you know, this is what makes a lot of sense to a writer who wants to recreate this world, for instance, in Disney's Hercules or whatever. You know, they had to answer these questions as well. But when you ask a scholar about this, these are not the questions that are interesting to them, or at least not as much interesting because it's all implicit and it all has to be inferred and it often doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I think that many people just shy away from that because it's very difficult. You have to go into many different thickets of textual sources. And even if you do, it's not often going to be fruitful. Sometimes you just get lost. So I would say that I have known very few people who are into this technical, theological or functional theology. The only person I would say who truly is a master of this craft and a person who I'm immensely grateful to is Professor Jenny Shrosclay, who wrote so many wonderful books about the gods. And I think she was the first who even pioneered the field of political theology of Olympus. And basically, the majority of stuff I know I've learned from her. And I'm just so happy that she was able to open this avenue of research. And I do hope that more and more people will come, although this is a narrow road, as I've said. And, <laughs> well, I'm just happy to have some of them. At least because then we can just talk how wonderfully frustrating and, you know, obfuscating, but yet wonderful the Greek mythology is. Yeah. I mean, it's just my favorite part are these enormous question marks, but that we can theorize about. Like, even just hearing you, you like, say that little <laughs> that little extra bit there, like, or I shouldn't say it was little, but just like the, the reason you're studying it and all these different things. Like, so this, that my other sort of obsessive character is Aeneas but Greek Aeneas because I think he's so interesting as like a a divine character who then kind of like drops off the map completely Um, which of course the Romans were like well we'll just put him on our map instead (laughs) yeah I mean they saw something that I think is not talked about enough frankly but just the 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 like potential that the character of Aeneas had in the Greek sources. Yeah, but you know, if you are interested in Aeneas uh, from the divine side, then actually in the Status volume, there is a wonderful chapter by Peter Heslin about the Roman conception of Aphrodite, who is Venus, mm-hmm. and how in the Roman literature she rises from her position in the Greek one. Because in the Greek one, she's laughingstock, basically. She is limited in every which way, whereas venus in roman literature she becomes the progenitrix of the roman people and she becomes so much more important and peter heston traces how you know how her fortunes are on the rise here and obviously he compares her to thetis like who has a very opposite trajectory because thetis as you know as the greek literature and so her trajectory falls her power is diminished Uh, achilles is dead and she has no power left whereas Venus is on the rise, and he juxtaposes Venus and Thetis and shows that as one goddess falls, another goddess rises. And here is the beginning of the Roman literature, and here is why Venus ascends to such meteoric heights. Yeah, okay, interesting, as if I didn't already write down uh, Thetis' book with a bunch of exclamation marks, because 
literally I had this exact same moment when I had David on the show, which I think had to have been like over a year ago now. Um, and I, I, but she is so interesting and she's one of those ones that does kind of get almost forgotten because it, it, because it's just like more about Achilles, but really she is just so interesting and also mysterious. And you know, she has a lot of story afterwards. I mean, in the classical reception, we weren't able to investigate everything, but uh, for instance, our friend Tina, she wrote a chapter about Thetis in uh, the medieval literature, like in the medieval recounting of Troy. And I kid you not, there are traditions which say that Achilles was black because his mother was a different kind of a being, which is, you know, obviously very racist, but it also uh, sort of shows this way of thinking they had that, you know, the Thetis was a different kind of being, and I think that in the medieval literature we first get this idea that Thetis was a kind of a witch, hmm. like she had some kind of supernatural power, which obviously fits very well with the descriptions of her just doing these experiments with potions and cauldrons and all that. Yeah. So how we know that ties very well. And my final chapter in this volume actually compares Thetis to two characters, two modern sea witches in the literature, who are Ursula from Little Mermaid <laughs> and Tia Dalma from Pirates of the Caribbean, who is the Greek goddess Calypso hidden in the mortal body. And I, I, I say that they have so many similarities in their fates. And I wouldn't say that their story of Thetis inspired these stories. But I would say that this is a very good template and it survives in the modern culture and people keep reusing it because it's such a captivating story of a powerful female who gets downtrodden by a male character and she still tries to rise and sometimes she finds a way to, you know, to get her revenge. Sometimes she doesn't, but you see this motherful and yet very dark character still rising periodically from the depths of the human imagination. And she happens again and again and again in the modern culture, which I think is great. Yeah. Oh, I'm kind of obsessed with her now, which is exactly the same thing that happened last time I had anyone tell me about her because she's just so damn interesting. Yeah. And there's still more to learn. Yes. I mean, I even just am thinking about like how, because obviously everything in my brain goes back to the women characters in myth and like the way she functions in the, you know, not only is it so explicit, like you were saying, you know, earlier talking about her, that that she does not want to be with Peleus, like that it is no, a rape, a hundred percent. Like in the Iliad, she says, "I was very much unwilling." Yeah, and that's so rare. That's so rare that a woman is given that kind of explicit agency in an ancient Greek text. Like honestly, and I, you know, I always will start shit when I say this, but like one of the only other examples I can think of is the Homeric hymn to Demeter, where it's like Persephone does not want to be there. And, and it's just so rare, but to have that be Thetis, and then also to have her like, still continually have all these examples of her like, having such power, and being willing to like, connive and do favors and like gain you know she's just like knows how to work this system she in a plays way the game yeah like in a way that's super unique amongst i mean against the amongst the divinities generally but especially women to be like yeah yes. i know how to get what i want Yes, but we've told like basically she can go against three olympians on her own yeah. and she doesn't even break a sweat so yeah. basically she is so powerful i mean yeah yeah and but just the way she uses that too like 
Like I'm going to go against these Olympians, but it's explicitly so that I can, you know, do something for Zeus that will severe, like really benefit me in the future. Yeah. Like, I can't you can usually... see why she is a character. Like, you know, because, well, many people say, uh, only read the Iliad and they say, well, Thetis is this crying character. Yeah. But then when you look closer, you see that Thetis is dark, she's powerful and she gets what she wants. Yes. Yeah. She's so much more interesting beyond the Iliad. Yeah. Oh my gosh, clearly I could keep going um, forever, uh, but, but I will I will let you go. But for real, like, I mean, I- I- any other topic that you want to come on the show and talk more about, um, please do. You're going on my list of like absolutely to, to have really. back. Oh my God, good, great. Could do this endlessly. Um, but do you want to tell my listeners like anything, anywhere you might want them to follow you or anywhere they could read more or really just anything you want to share? I do have a Twitter profile, but I think Twitter is going to hell right now. So <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of what all my guests are saying at this part of the episodes these days. Yeah, like, you know, I'm trying to break into Blue Sky, but it's not, you know, it's still very inchoate at this point. But yeah, uh, basically, you know, I, uh, well, I do a lot of stuff with classical reception these times. Like I've been breaking into computer games. Uh, maybe I didn't mention that, but I was actually a mythological consultant for a video game called Apotheon in 2015. Cool. And and this was a game which looks like a Greek vase, which many people say this is what brought them to it, because it looks like a black figure Greek vase, and you play as one of the characters on the vase. And the story is that you are a human who is being tasked by Hera to go against Zeus and steal the powers of the Greek gods for himself, because the Greek gods have left the earth at the end of the Iron Age, and there is no god on the earth, and there are plagues aplenty, and everything just goes to shit. So you have to go to Olympus and take these divine powers for yourself so you can grow grain, so you can have the sand, and so you can command the waters. And the story of Apotheon is this mad romp throughout the Olympus, throughout the sea, throughout Hades, as all you go and, and, uh, and interact with different gods and goddesses, and ask them of their views on the situation. And so at the very end, you attack Zeus and you take his thunderbolt for yourself and you become the final god standing. That's very fun. I'm going to immediately go look for this game. (laughs) I notoriously only have played Assassin's Creed Odyssey and I just keep playing it all the time. Um, So I do need to branch out. (laughs) Have you played Stray Gods yet? No, I've literally only played Odyssey. Like, like I just, I grew up on N64 and then I just never played another game like console until I was finally convinced to buy a PlayStation explicitly for Odyssey. And now every time I try to play something else, I'm like, but I know how to play Odyssey and I'm good at it. And learning something new is really difficult. Still, you know, you know, if you are, you know, new to that, I would recommend you play Stray Gods because okay. this is a detective musical when you play the character of Calliope. <laughs> okay. Who is murdered and then gets reincarnated into another body and she has to discover the identity of her murderer before the week uh, elapses or she's get punished for this murder because for all the other gods, now you could have murdered Calliope for her powers. And the way you go around and ask people questions is that you use the godly powers of the muse to make people sing their heart out to you. <laughs> and you have Apollo and Persephone and Athena there and they all sing to you and it's a musical. Oh my God. And it's basically a visual novel because you only pick dialogues. You don't, yeah. you know, you don't do anything strenuous. You don't have any specific actions. 
it's more much more of a visual novel but it's just so good and you know the music is on point the characters are on point and which is most important for me it's really really close to greek mythology mm. it's clear that the writer did his job and he knows a lot about hades he knows a lot about how the greek gods work and how their powers work and the Erinys also make an appearance. Well, that's always so good. So highly recommend it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Did you have anything else you wanted to share with my listeners before we uh, sign At this up? point, no, no. No. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. This was so, so much, much fun. Oh, my God. As always, thank you all so much for listening. I just, it's so much fun. Oh my God. Like, I love all the conversation episodes. Obviously, I love that I'm talking about like history and culture and like really anything fascinating about the ancient Mediterranean. But when I get somebody on like this to just talk about the gods in their purest forms, oh my God, what a true joy. So huge. Thank you to Matthew for coming on the show. It was fucking awesome and so interesting. My gods. He will definitely be back. Uh, There's just endless conversations to be had about the gods and all their dirty details. But for now, if you are curious about the Thetis book that has been mentioned and was mentioned last year, too, in my episode with David Wright, it is called The Staying Power of Thetis, and it is linked in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as the assistant producer. Laura Smith is the new production assistant and audio engineer. Select music used in this episode, actually maybe not, but it's in the newest episodes and it's written into my script, uh, is by Luke Chaos. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much. You are just such a joy. I am Liv and I fucking love this shit. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford. 
a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.